Welcome to the Record of Our Forebears podcast. I'm your host, Roland Godette III, and with me today, as usual, is my wonderful wife, Summer Godette. On the Record of Our Forebears, we discuss the stories of some of the dopest black folks that you may or may not have heard of. So grab a pen, some paper, and your note-taking app on your phone, and get ready to learn something new. Today, we're going to discuss, i uh, got a couple new people to bring to you. Mm-hmm. Now, one of those is Reverend Josiah Henson. Mm. May not have heard of him, but we're going to get into the story and get into it real quick here. So, Josiah Henson was born on June 15th, 1789 in Charles Camp- County, Maryland, about a mile from an area called Port Tobacco. Mm. So you know what they was exporting. Of course. <laughs> right. Of course. Um, Port Tobacco actually is still a, uh, like a small village in Maryland. Mm. It's like the smallest incorporated area of Maryland. Okay. Like Southern Maryland. So he was born on a farm of a man named Francis Newman. That was not his enslaver. Remember how we talked about slaves being hired out? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so his mother was actually hired out to Francis Newman. So he was born on the Newman farm. Okay. Even though his enslaver was a different person, a man named Dr. McPherson. Okay. So he, uh, Francis Newman actually was the enslaver of his father. Uh, one of the first incidents that Josiah talks about remembering as a child occurred on the Newman farm. His father heard screaming and immediately recognized the voice as being Josiah Henson's mother. Mm. So he ran to find out what was going on. And what he saw was the overseer was assaulting uh, Josiah Henson's mother. Mm. So he immediately jumped into action and beat the overseer off of her. Wow. Um, But, of course, Mm, he received the punishment for that. Of course. And Josiah said that his father was dragged into the middle of the farm and they gave him a hundred lashes Mm, and then they mm. nailed his ear to a post and cut it off. Wow. And wow. So that was kind of the first, one of his first memories. He was about three or four years old. When wow. So, I mean, I can imagine that type of, mm-hmm. that type of thing will stay with you, yes. you know, as a child. So his father ended up being sold down south to Alabama because they saw him, at the, after that, they saw him as a troublemaker. Mm. And so he never saw his father again after that incident. Um, after the father was sold... Uh, his mother was returned to her enslaver, Dr. McPherson. Dr. McPherson, uh, according to Josiah Henson, was uh, he was kinder than the majority of uh, enslavers in the area at the time. Uh, according to Henson, he said that he never even seen he never even saw McPherson strike any of his slaves. Mm. He wouldn't even let the overseer strike them. And the reason he called uh, Josiah and his mother back was because he heard about what happened. Okay. At the farm about and, and the he, assault. Exactly. Okay. And so he want he didn't want his slave to be subjected to that violence. Okay. And so he called him back. So he kind of had like a weird kind of moral compass. Like yes. I want to treat you guys violently, but I still own you. Yes. Like wow. Right. So Dr. McPherson during this time, um, Henson says that it was ver- it was really peaceful for a few years. Okay. But McPherson was also a drunkard, and one night coming home from a party. He was really drunk, and he was drunk driving. And by driving, I mean <laughs> drunk riding his horse. And he fell off of his horse mm-hmm. into a creek that was about one foot deep. But he was so drunk, he couldn't get out of the creek and drown. 
Wow. Yeah, so because of that, all his property had to go for sale so that it can be distributed to the profits among his heirs. Mm. Including in that property was those enslaved people, right? Mm. Josiah Henson and his family, which included his mother and he had five siblings. Okay, he was the youngest of the five. So this is how Josiah um, Josiah Henson describes the scene of the auction. He says, "My brothers and sisters were bid off one by one, while my mother, holding my hand, looked on in an agony of grief, the cause of which I had but." the cause of which I had but ill understood of at first, but which dawned in my mind with dreadful clearfulness as the sale proceeded. My mother was separated from me. She was bought by a man named Isaac Riley. Then I was offered to the assembled purchasers. My mother, half distracted with the parting forever from all her children, pushed through the crowd to the spot where Riley was standing. She fell at his feet and clung to his knees, entreating him in tones that only a mother could command to buy her baby and spare her one of her little ones at least. And then he would go on to describe how instead of just ignoring her, Riley actually punched and kicked his mother until she let him go. Mm, mm, so these mm. are things that he's seeing literally like as a you know, 10 year old, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, as a developing like adolescent. Right. And so he, um, after he was purchased by a different Enslaver. Mm -hmm. um, it was still in. They were still in Maryland, so they were still close. Okay. But he said that he ended up falling like gravely ill, and he wasn't getting any better. And because he was so ill, he couldn't work. And mm. Because he couldn't work, this other enslaver had no use for him. Mm. And so, his mother was still entreating Riley to buy her son. Okay. Because she knew he was close. And so Riley ended up purchasing Josiah and reuniting him with his mother, and he immediately started to get better. Wow. Yep. How did she do that? Uh, she just continued to entreat him. Yeah. And he said uh, later on in his in his narrative, he says that his mother was a woman of prayer. She always was praying. Mm, so okay. she just, you know, had hope and faith that God yes. that would bring her at least one of her children. So, wow. Okay. Yeah. So one of the ways that uh, Henson described Riley was this. He said... The character of the master whom I faithfully served for many years, Mr. Riley, is by no means uncommon, uh, no means an uncommon one in any part of the world. But it is to be regretted that a domestic institution should anywhere put in its power of such a one to tyrannize his fellow human beings and inflict so much needless misery as is sure to produce by such a man in such a, such a position. Co coarse and vulgar in his habits unprincipled and cruel in his general deportment and especially addicted to the vice of licentiousness, his slaves had little opportunity for relaxation from wearying labor. We were supplied with the scantest means of sustaining and had no security for personal rights. The natural tendency of slavery is to convert the master into a tyrant and the slave into a cringing, treacherous, false and thieving victim of the tyranny. So, yeah, so he obviously his master didn't have a good uh, <laughs> he wasn't like McPherson. Mm -hmm. He was he was the, mm -hmm. kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, basically giving them barely what they could you know use to survive, to eat. And it wasn't a great time with Riley um, for the Hensons. A lot of hard work. And so during this time, he grew up from a boy into a man. Mm -hmm. And during and while he was growing and working on. 
the uh, Riley farm, he gained the trust and respect of his fellow brothers and sisters in bondage. Riley also saw this, the respect that he had, and eventually fired his overseers and made Josiah Henson the overseer because mm. he wanted to save money. Of course. I don't have to pay an overseer. I can just, you know, I have free labor. Mm -hmm. I'll just, you know, this guy, they already respect him. So once he became in charge of the farm, because he treated the, obviously his, his fellow enslaved people with kindness, it actually doubled the crop, like output of the farm. Wow. Because they did just didn't want to work for the overseer and just that violence and stuff like you beating mm -hmm. these people down. Yes. Like it didn't work. But because obviously with Henson in charge, he wasn't doing that. It doubled the output of the farm. So it ended up working out for Riley pretty good. So throughout his childhood, he always talked about the faith of his mother. Like I said before, mm -hmm. he said that she was unable to read, but she did know the Lord's Prayer. Somebody at some point taught her the Lord's Prayer. And he said that she was constantly reciting the Lord's Prayer while they were working, just throughout the day. Mm, he mm, always mm. saw his mother just reciting the Lord's Prayer. And at night when she would pray before she went to bed, she would recite the Lord's Prayer. And he just saw that, like his mother praying mm -hmm, constantly. Mm -hmm. And she she didn't read. She didn't know much about God. Like she wasn't formally taught a yes. lot about God yes. and about Jesus. But she knew mm -hmm. the Lord's Prayer. And she would just say it. And so... He writes in his book about his conversion. And so what he writes is, he says, there was a person living in Georgetown, only a few miles from Riley's plantation, whose business was that of a baker and whose character was that of an upright, benevolent Christian. He was noted especially for his detestation of slavery and his, and his resolute avoidance of the unemployment uh, excuse me, his resolute avoidance of the employment of slave labor in his business. He would not even hire a slave. This man occasionally served as a minister of the gospel and preached in the neighborhood where preachers were somewhat rare at that period. On one Sunday, when he was to officiate in this way at a place three or four miles distance from us, my mother persuaded me to ask my master's leave and to go hear him. And although such permission was not giving free, given freely or often, Yet this favor to me was shown for this once by allowing me to go. I hurried off, pleased with the opportunity, but without any definite expectation of bent or amusement. For up to this period in my life, I was then 18 years old. I had never heard a sermon, nor any discourse or conversation, whatever, upon religious topics, except what had been impressed upon me by my mother of the responsibility of all to a supreme being. When I arrived at the place of meeting, the services were so far advanced that the speaker was just beginning his discourse from the text, Hebrews 2, verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death, death for every man. The divine character of Jesus Christ, his life teachings, his sacrifice of himself for others, his death and resurrection were all alluded to. And some of the points were dwelt upon with great power, great, at least to me who heard of these things for the first time in my life. I was wonderfully impressed, too, with the use of which the preacher made of the last words of the text. He said, the death of Christ was not designed for the benefit of a select few only, but for the salvation of the world, for the bond as well as the free. And he dwelt on the glad tidings of the gospel to the poor, the persecuted, and the distressed, its deliverance to the captive, and the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free till my heart burned within me. And I was in a state of the greatest excitement at the thought that such a being as Jesus Christ had been described should have died for me, 
For me, among the rest, a poor, despised, abused slave who was thought by his fellow creatures fit for nothing but unrequited toil and ignorance, for mental and bodily degradation. I immediately determined to find out something more about, quote, Christ and him crucified. And revolving the things which I had heard in my mind, as I went home, I became so excited that I had turned aside from the road into the woods and prayed to God for light and aid. Wow. Yeah. So, and he said he counts that as like his conversion to mm-hmm, Christianity. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know much, mm-hmm. but he heard that sermon that Christ died for the bond and the free. Mm-hmm, and he was mm-hmm. like, that's me. Yes. I'm in there. And so. Just powerful. How powerful yep. uh, the word is and to the hearer of the word, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. So one night while um, Riley, Riley would take Hanson, Henson out with him when he would go party because he knew Henson was trustworthy and would get him home safe. Mm-hmm. So one night he went out and Riley actually gets beat up like in a tavern brawl. Oh, okay. And Henson is there. <laughs> and so he goes thinking he's doing something good, defends Riley. But in the process, he beats up this other white man, mm-hmm. which ended up being a mistake for him because later on he gets cornered by the white man and like a gang of other oh, white men. And they course. beat him until they break his shoulders Ooh. and it never hears properly. So from this time on, he's never able to raise his arm above his head. Wow. For the rest of his life. Um, he has so many stories in his narrative. Like mm-hmm. I could, I like literally <laughs> like 50, I have like 57 more stories uh-huh. written down right here uh-huh. that he goes into so much detail about what happens, but I kind of want to get to, there's certain things I want to hit. Mm-hmm. So Riley ends up being bankrupt because he wasn't good with his money. Of course. Even though Henson had doubled the crops <laughs> and he intended to sell Henson to New Orleans and to sell the rest of his other enslaved people off to different places to, you know, to clear up some of his debt. Mm-hmm. At this point, Henson is married to a woman, another enslaved woman named Charlotte, and they have four children. He remembers how his family was separated. And he says, not going to happen to us. And so he took advantage of his master's, um, you know, questionable character because his master uh, move from he, he tried to move a lot of his property to Kentucky with his brother-in-law to get away from the mm-hmm. debt collectors. Okay. Now Kentucky is right on the border, mm-hmm. and so when they get to Kentucky, Henson grabs his family, his four children, and they escape across the Ohio River into Indiana. And two of their oldest children could walk, but the two youngest ones couldn't. And so Henson, with his messed-up shoulders. Is carrying like a pack. Remember that pack I used to have with Roro? Yeah. Carry Roro on my back. Yeah, like the kind of hiking pack for mm-hmm. your kiddos. Yeah. His wife had created one just for this purpose. Mm. And he had the two children on his back with the straps digging into his shoulders. Ugh. But he carried them and they eventually make it to Canada. Wow. And so when he gets to Canada um, in about 1830, they're there for about um, four years. He works as a farmer mm-hmm. there. He actually becomes a Methodist preacher there. He gets ordained. Wow. And while he's working as a farmer, he in four years, he's able to earn enough money to buy 200 acres of land where he sets up a black settlement to help other escaped slaves wow. that makes it that make it to Ontario. Wow. And the settlement was called the Dawn Settlement. The Dawn Settlement. Yep. OK. So in 1849, he published his book, The Life of Josiah Henson, Formerly a Slave. It's why it's widely believed that this book, his narrative was the model for Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm, wow. And so wow. after after Harriet Beecher Stowe 
received a lot of success for her best-selling novel, Uncle mm-hmm. Tom's Cabin. Uh, Henson wrote another book called "The Truth Is Stranger Than Fric- uh, This Truth Is Stranger Than Fiction." Mm-hmm. Father Henson's story of his own life, okay. basically expanding on and putting more details into the story of his life. Yes, um, he ended up dying on May fifth. 1883 at the age of 93 in Dresden, Ontario, Canada. Wow. He's the first black person to be on a stamp in Canada. Oh. And the cabin where he lived in Ontario is still standing today. And it's a historical site. And it talks about the Dawn Settlement, Mm -hmm. the Underground Railroad, and Henson's life in Canada. Wow. Yeah. What an amazing story. (laughs) What an amazing story. And this is... Wow, this is the Uncle Tom from yep. the Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yep. And it's so crazy because our society has, um, when we hear people use that term as like mm-hmm. a derogatory term, it's like, where where do we get that from? That idea that Uncle Tom was, was this bad character. He actually was a positive character because mm-hmm. he helped people, enslaved people, get out of slavery. Yep. And it's like, where did that come from? Was that from people who agreed with slavery to say... Don't be an Uncle Tom. Like, where did that come from? So I think it came from um, like the the shows that they would do when they would dress in blackface and make fun of black people. The minstrel shows. The minstrel shows. Okay. And the minstrel shows, they would have a character named Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. It would be a black man. And they essentially made fun of the Uncle Tom character like he was, you know, dumb and, you know, uh, uneducated, Mm -hmm. uh, unfaithful. And so that is where that term got flipped around. And then now we, unfortunately, associate that. that associate yes. it with the, the later version of the term instead of the original mm-hmm. meaning and the original meaning of the term. So, yeah. But that's what happens when you don't know history, though. That's, that's why what it's important. Happens. We doing what we're doing. Yeah. To get familiar with who these actual mm-hmm. um, people were and their importance um, and to know the truth and. Ooh, just gives me chills to just see how um, you you know people wonder where was God when all of this was happening you mm-hmm. know um, um, but he was there and people who had the ears to hear they they heard mm-hmm. that word and that really led a lot of these people to take action to yep. do what was right so this next person um, that I wanted to share um, that I want to share uh, with you all is Susie King Taylor. So Susie King Taylor, she was born into slavery in Georgia in 1848. She was born as Susan Baker. Now, she lived on a uh, plantation for the first seven years of her life. Um, And around 1855, she and her sibling, um, they were allowed to live with her grandmother, who was free at the time. And we're talking about a lot of um, black uh, people during that time who were either able to buy their uh, freedom um, using their, you know, side uh, jobs, um, making money on the side and mm-hmm. paying an amount to their enslaver. Or like many of these African-Americans or these black people, they were um, the children of their enslavers. So, mm-hmm. um not not quite sure. I read before about her grandmother, and I think we talked about it before as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, her grandmother was free, and she was able to live there. Um, now, despite Georgia's harsh laws prohibiting like formal education, yep. which we talked about, how um, you know African Americans uh, were. K 
kept from being able to read and write because mm-hmm. they knew, you know, our government knew the power and being able to read what our laws said, being able to understand um, that they had a right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, our founding father said that was given to us from God, right? That we were born with. Absolutely. Now, she, she she secretly attended two schools. Um, these schools were underground, but they were taught by black women. Oh, wow. And um, she was tutored by two white youths. So she knew how to read and write as a young child. Now, in uh, 1862, she was able to escape slavery um, with her uncle and other African-Americans. And so they were able to uh, flee using a federal gunboat near a Confederate hill fort, Fort Pulaski oh, wow. um, was the fort. And she went on to live on this, you know, this Northern Union occupied island called St. Um, Simmons. And it was just off of the Southern coast of Georgia. Mm-hmm. And there were hundreds, they said hundreds of formerly enslaved um, African-Americans there. So she was like 14 years old around this time. And she decided to use that knowledge that she was given to teach those people there how to read and how to write. So at 14 years old, she became a teacher and um, openly educated um, African-Americans there in Georgia. And that's such a stark contrast. You're going from a place where they're, you got to do school in secret. Yes. And then to a place where you can now put in in the open, like nobody's going to say anything to you. No. You can just say, hey, here's what I learned. I'm going to pass it to you. Yes. As a 14 year old. Yes. I'm going to teach, you know, hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, she ended up marrying a man named Edward King. And Edward King was an officer in the 33rd uh, United States Colored Infantry Regiment. Now, we okay. talked about the 54th Regiment yep. before, yep. who we know uh, that regiment, regiment was made very famous in the movie Glory. Um, and so we're able to learn a little bit more about other colored infantries. There were many of them. Um, well, not many, but they were multiple regiments right, right around the, the country. And so she began serving there. So wow. she ended up serving as a nurse, oh, like wow. out of all things, but she served as a nurse. She served as a laundress. So mm-hmm. she, you know, cleaned the uniforms and everything for them there. And then again, in her off hours, she taught soldiers how to read and write. Oh, wow. And um, she ended up keeping the note the way that we had this information is because she left memoirs. And in her memoir, she said that she learned to handle a musket very well and could shoot straight and often hit the target. Um, So she was also prepared to be able to go into battle. Yeah. If she if need be. Um, So she moved on to serving um, as a nurse there as well as um, a nurse in a hospital in Beaumont, South Carolina. Mm. And she met Clara Barton. And if that name rings a bell, yep. she Clara was Barton one is. the founder of the Red Cross. Um, so for four years and three months, she did this. She served as a union military um, nurse and educator without pay. So she did this for free. Um, and then she and her husband, Edward, they remained within the 33rd Regiment um, until they were mustered uh, out of uh, until the end of the war. Um, in 1866, Susie and Edward, they moved to Savannah where she ended up officially opening a school for African-American children. And it was really sad because um, her husband, Edward, he ended up dying there and he died 
a few months before uh, she had their first child. Mm. And so that just really put a hurting on her because now she was um, the complete and sole like breadwinner. And so she tried to scrape by as an educator and running this school for several years while repeatedly losing students um, and, um, you know, trying to be able to keep the school was a struggle for her. Mm. And then at that time, public schools began to, to open up. Right. So eventually yeah. she was forced to shut down the school and forced to take a job as a domestic servant. Mm. And, you know, while we know many, um, uh, black women, African-American women um, during that time. And then, of course, decades after that was like the job that many of them, you know, they had to do. Yeah. But we knew that this woman had a medical profession mm -hmm. that she had, you know, she was an educator. And so, you know, this was really, really sad that she was able she had to do that um, because she was a gem that was, you know, being missed from the culture. So in the 1870s, she ended up moving in with this uh, wealthy family um, to continue to serve them further when they uh, moved to Boston. Okay. And she lived the rest of her days um, in Boston. And then she met uh, Russell Taylor and uh, married him. And then she served in the Women's Relief Corps and became the president of that corps um, in 1893. And then she ended up writing a book um, and that book was really about um, her experiences in the Civil, Civil War. Yep. Yeah. And it's called Reminiscence of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops. Um, late first SC volunteers, so that South Carolina volunteers. And when she published uh, her memoirs in, you know, in 1902, she became the first and only African-American woman to publish her account of her experiences in the Civil War. Wow. And so, um, you know, her her memoirs acknowledge the racism that persisted decades after the Civil War. Um, you know, people talk about, well, you know, slavery was a long time ago and we had the Civil War. And, you know, by now, people should have, you know, African-Americans should be well off into, you know, becoming model citizens. But she talked about how, like, slavery continued to persist. Right. And um, even though it continued to persist, she still had this, like, positive outlook mm -hmm. and um, which really we can be attributed to we, we see that to her faith in God yeah. and here's I just like to uh, close here by sharing a quote um, from from Susie she says what a wonderful revolution in 1861 the southern papers were, were full of advertisements for slaves but now, despite all the hindrances and quote unquote race problems, my people are striving to attain the full standard of all other races born free in the sight of God. And in a number of instances have succeeded. Justice, we ask to be citizens of these United States, where so many of our people have shed their blood with their white comrades, that the stars and stripes should never be polluted. So I hope you all can continue to get familiar with Susie King Taylor. Absolutely. If you are like black in the medical field, like this is whose shoulders you're standing on mm -hmm. between her and we know women like Mary Mahoney. Mm -hmm. Like these are the shoulders of like these women like holding you up, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and let's think about like the people in our lives that we know are in the medical field. Mm -hmm. They are nurses. And like th this is who like my mm -hmm. mom, my mom's a nurse. Mm -hmm. like this is who she is like 
she's a like a direct descendant yes. of this woman essentially yes. like you know professionally that's mm-hmm. Yeah, incredible. Nurses, um, our educators, educators. Um, yep. We know in general, you know, how our society feels and how we treat our educators, and so just understanding that, yeah, we're standing on the shoulders um, of someone like a Susie um, King Taylor. So, so yes, good. yes, wonderful, yeah, so, wonderful story. Yeah. So we would encourage everyone listening get familiar with Susie King Taylor. Get familiar with Reverend Josiah Henson. Like these two are two of the most incredible people you know, in the history of our country. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, uh, when you're listening to this, it'll still be Black History Month. Yes. Like get familiar with these people and don't just stop there. Mm-hmm. Like continue to read more. Find out, you know, about some people on your own. Let's hope that the next time we come on. When we introduce somebody that you didn't know before the episode started, you'll say, you know what? I read about them when mm-hmm. I was reading about Josiah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I read about, you know, I read about him when I was reading about Susie King Taylor. So we appreciate everyone for listening. We hope that you join us next time where we have a couple more people, some great stories, some interesting stories, some tough things to talk about. Of course. But it's time to get familiar. Definitely. Until next time. Until next time.